Hello, everyone. Uh, Sean here from Mythos and Logos, joined by Matt from 60 Second Philosophy. Where today Hello. we are taking a look at a platonic dialogue, the Gorgias. Uh, I myself, having a background in myth, was very fascinated by especially the ending of this one. But to follow some of the points that Socrates and these rhetoricians that he was speaking with um, reached throughout the main bulk of this dialogue, uh, that is why we are turning to the expertise of Matt. He is a fantastic, uh, very insightful YouTube philosopher and is going to give us a great time. So it seems like the conversation here is about teaching seems to be at the core of it. And what exactly is Socrates getting at? And who are these people that he's speaking with? So there's a lot of, um, there are a couple of the platonic dialogues revolve around rhetoricians and, and rhetoric. And rhetoric kind of was kind of growing up alongside the early bits of philosophy in, um, in around the time that Socrates was doing his work. In fact, Socrates got sort of accused of being a rhetorician himself in um, the in the clouds, which is a, a, a play that was that featured Socrates. So he's a little he's a little sensitive about these things. It's not that the rhetoricians are necessarily uh, bad guys, but the problem was they had pretensions of uh, of being able to do things that they probably couldn't do. So a lot of the rhetorical dialogues are using rhetoric as a jumping off point to talk about something else. So in this case, uh, a lot of what he's talking about is, um, is justice and injustice, sort of uh, like, like he does in the Republic. And he does this by talking to a famous rhetorician. His name is Gorgias and his student Polis. And, and when that conversation kind of goes south, uh, another guy comes in named Callicles and he kind of, uh, he, he tries to, um, make up for, for the slack that the other two were, were leaving. And they were leaving that slack because they were afraid to say the hard things. They were afraid to be kind of, uh, kind of look bad to people. The words that they were saying, they wanted to look good, uh, to anyone else who might've been listening. And, and Callicles kind of doesn't care about right. that. So the whole, the whole dialogue kind of spans this idea of what is the capability of, of rhetoric, uh, mostly, regarding teaching justice can it do that and then what is rhetoric uh what is it capable of and is it really this awesome thing that people are saying it is and then finally uh talking about justice in, in injustice in the context of pleasure and hedonism yes and i i noticed as you mentioned the the way that the different than that socrates speaks with he speaks with them very differently um <clears throat> with agorgius and polis it it seems like he's kind of talking circles around them like they have something that they're not saying but then callicles when he comes in is very straightforward and it seems like his his argument is really a very selfish one one in which he feels that the people who have special abilities or special positions of power or have the capabilities of doing so should try and give themselves as good of a life as possible. And there's definitely been 
I feel like across dialogues and a lot of Greek philosophy, the question of what is the good life and what is Socrates's idea of the good life or a life well-lived or a just life? I think that if you had to really put it um, succinctly, it would be a life that's aligned with the, the, the form of the good. Now that sort of becomes a, a difficult one to unpack, but I think that if you take, um, if you take the forms and, and kind of break them up into their little pieces, a, a lot of it has to do with virtue. A lot of the dialogues are revolving around virtues uh, like justice and temperance and courage and that sort of thing. And, um, and so I think that that's a really good uh, foundation for his belief on how to live well. And uh, he's, he's consistent. Even here in the Gorgias, he's saying that it's better to live according to justice than it is to, um, than it is to commit injustice. Uh, it's better to suffer for the consequences of your of your evil actions than it is to commit evil actions. Um, elsewhere in the Republic, he says basically it's it's better to be just and 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 basically get get executed, <laughs> you know, live a life of 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 pain and suffering and then die, than it is not to be just. So we have to sort of take him seriously there. But that's sort of the the point of dissonance in this dialogue, where people are like, wait, I can't get behind that. You know, I don't really want to be in pain. I don't really want to suffer. And justice doesn't seem like something that's going to really make it up to me mm -hmm. uh, in, in that sense. So that's kind of where people are, are losing him there. It seems to almost foreshadow the end of Socrates' life when he is, uh, you know, at first attempted to be exiled, but then executed by the state, by the same people that he tried to teach so there's definitely some foresight there, or perhaps hindsight, since it is Plato writing this down afterwards. But you definitely see the context of this greater life. And when you speak of the form of the good, my understanding of the forms is that if you look at something that is good and something else that is good and find what it is that they're both pointing to, what it is that they're both sharing, you'll be able to understand a little bit about goodness. And so yeah. for Socrates, he's more concerned with aligning his life to the idea of goodness, the form, as Plato's words would put it, of goodness. Whereas it seems like, especially to Callicles, or maybe just Callicles is a especially willing to be transparent about it, he's much more concerned with the benefits of life, the worldly pleasures. Yeah, he um, he sort of represents, um, you know, he probably represents the, the Greek worldview as it came down from Homer. You know, the, the, the hero that's going to do what he's going to do and he's going to he's going to be the boss and he's going to kill a lot of people and he's going to get all the women and you know he's going to defy the gods and all that stuff so i think that he sort of represents what everyone is thinking and no one really wants to mm. say um which is i want the best possible life for myself and i don't really care uh how i'm gonna get it and there's some elements of the social contract in there uh, where people uh this is more coming from the republic but i think that it crosses over 
where people are like, well, I can't really do that without getting arrested or beat up or murdered or something else. So I'm just going to kind of do as much bad as I can without getting in trouble. And then, um, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But it's this attitude of, um, of finding value in uh, particularly, you know, money, fame, and power are the three big Greek ones. Um, and pleasure we see with Calicles. Um, it's those sorts of things that, that, that Socrates is fighting against here and elsewhere. Right. So Socrates, even though today we think of him as the, the ultimate Greek philosopher, the representative of everything that came from his students, Plato and Aristotle, and their students, and so on, to form classical Greek culture. He was very much different from most of the people of his time. Yeah, I mean, it's you can even kind of look at the, at the stuff that kind of shot out from Socrates. Um, obviously, you have Platonism, and by extension, Aristotelianism, but the, the Stoics, the Cynics, um, the skeptics, these are all schools that the Hellenistic schools really shot out from Socrates for different reasons. So, um, if, if you're familiar with, uh, Diogenes, the cynic, um, he was, he's a real interesting character in philosophy, but he really has his roots in, in Socrates and the way that Socrates lived his life. Um, very opposed to, uh, not, not opposed to pleasure, but just opposed to, um, a needless pleasure or excess pleasure. He did things that were really strange. Like if you read in the, um, the symposium, he'd walk around barefoot and he'd, uh, you know, he'd kind of like uh, get really close to potential lovers and, and never do anything with them. He, he would not eat for days on end and march for a long time. And he just kind of do these things that you'd say, that's uncomfortable. I, I don't really want to do that. Um, so he kind of represents uh, he represents a lot of different ideas that sort of fractalized, you know, like a prism and turned into all these different schools and, you know, ultimately affected the West in immense ways. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the way that there were so many branches off from Socrates and going down the, the chain of, uh, of students I mean, we even get to some very influential people, uh, Socrates to Plato to Aristotle to Alexander the Great. And yeah. so this this very relatively lowly in terms of someone who's not trying to be one of the great heroes like the Bronze Age men of the Trojan War, uh, these these warriors uh looking for glory that's that's not socrates at all yet his ideas influence the i mean even the men who would come to rule most of the known world at his time um yeah and even though he wasn't involved in any type of rule or leadership socrates mentions justice quite a bit and what exactly does he think about it and what are his ideas of 
of living a just life, whether that's for an individual, for a ruler, for a society. So in the Republic, he goes through this um, and, and there's a lot of questions as to where he actually lands. Um, but basically his idea of justice is doing your part, you know, functioning within society in a way that you ought to. Um, and, you know, there's some wiggle room there, but uh, basically, you know, fu- uh, d- d- work, don't hurt other people um, and 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 do your part. Right. Um, I'm not sure if we're supposed to necessarily import that into this dialogue, because this dialogue, I think the idea of justice is sort of um, it's it's assumed that that it just basically um, means like don't don't do bad things like don't break the law uh, a lot of it has to do with law because we're talking about rulers and we're talking about um what people can get away with and what they should expect from the punitive side of justice so when we're talking in that sense i think we should just kind of take it at face value to say um living in alignment with the the, the norms of society uh, not not trying to to get ahead in any ways that are illicit or illegal. Mm-hmm. So even even if it's not necessarily the norms of that culture of the time that Socrates had, well, that had been the norms before him or that these people like Gorgias Polis and Callicles are representing, uh, it seems like he's much more comfortable with the idea of suffering and comfortable with the idea of an encouraging of the idea of suffering for what's right being something that is good that it is better to live a good and just and moral life than to have any of the worldly pleasures i mean if we think of um like when I think of someone who is the opposite of what Socrates is going for in this, I think of someone who actually knew Socrates quite well, was a student of Socrates, uh, Alcibiades, who had very much lived this, I suppose, hedonistic kind of lifestyle, uh, famous trader in it for himself, and is very much portrayed like that at least least, by people in the future writing about him as well, where Socrates is portrayed very differently, is concerned with with something far above this world. Yeah, I think that one of the important elements of Socrates' argument, and it's hard because this kind of gets conflated with um, with other dialogues, um, and it also gets conflated with a lot that comes afterwards in Neoplatonism and with Christianity. But I think that in, there's a kernel of something in in Socrates in this in this dialogue that is saying that you you being good, like yourself being good, is actually more important than you feeling good. And and in some sense. He uses the he uses the myth at the end to kind of justify this, but I don't I don't think he necessarily would strictly justify it with the myth. In fact, I've heard a lot of people very disappointed with the myth. They say, "Well, you know, you're making this argument for justice, and then you're just saying a lot at the end. You're just going to go to hell or whatever. It's no big deal." Like, 
he, people are waiting for him to kind of explain why this is the case in this life. And I think that there's something there. And what I think it is, is that when you are good, you are actually aligning yourself with this, this metaphysical cosmological good um, that, that exists, existed before you will exist after you. And you being a part of that is, is sort of your soul doing what it's supposed to do. So you'll be sort of miserable if, if you do anything else, you you might, you might have bodily pleasure, you might have comforts, but your soul is corrupt. And because of that, uh, your, your, your spectrum of happiness has, has gotten a lot smaller. Mm. And I, I find it very interesting as you bring up the, the myth at the end of the dialogue, uh, that it is very much this like last judgment type of scenario. But I think it comes into something much deeper than just saying, well, be good or you're going to go to the bad fiery place where the red guy's going to poke you with a stick forever. Right. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that Socrates really focuses on not the worldly benefits that one can gain in the world, but looking at the overall picture of someone's um you know in the words he would use someone's soul but i think we can see that even in the way we think of looking back in history right if we look at the homeric idea of greatness uh we're looking at people these fierce warriors like achilles or these tricksters like odysseus um and and they are fascinating characters with their own journeys that I find really inspiring in many ways. But if we want to look at somebody closer to our modern times who's like one of them, I mean, we could maybe look at somebody like Napoleon, the idea mm -hmm. of a, a warrior, a general who was exiled from his own land and was able to speak so well, he roused his own troops to turn against the state which had exiled him to try to make one last great fight and yet look at how our contemporary society 200 years later looks at napoleon yeah we we right. think of a short though he wasn't actually but an, an angry man trying to to overcompensate and make himself a ruler of the world uh very much going for those worldly pleasures and yet we can, and I wonder if speaking as an American, there's something about it in that we're very democratized of things, uh, very much maybe different from, but in the tradition of Athens, right? Um, the idea of stripping back the ideas of power, the ideas of being this European emperor in Napoleon's case, and looking at the character of a person and the way that historical hindsight can judge someone. Um, mm -hmm. In this myth, it, it talks about the, the idea of the last judgment where you're either going to 
the Isles of the Blessed, which is like the Elysian Fields, this paradise afterlife, or Tartarus, which is a very torturous afterlife. When you look in mythology at people like Sisyphus, uh, Tantalus, these people who've had these great punishments, uh, that's Tartarus. When when we think of Hades or hell in our contemporary context, that's more along the lines of what we're thinking of, whereas Hades in the classical sense is kind of more of an underworld, kind of a gloomy place where everyone's hanging out and just kind of kind of bummed to not be alive anymore but it is what it is uh when when we look at something like in the odyssey when odysseus journeys yeah. to the underworld right um but in this dialogue in this myth with that last judgment there is a problem and the problem is that people are judged before they're going to die it's hey if you're gonna die tomorrow so you're gonna go before these uh judges who are children of zeus and some of the earliest cycle of greek myths and so take some time make your case and uh you know put on a sob story if you want start crying make yourself try and look good and it leads to a lot of people being sent in the wrong places mm. um the text here says that accordingly Pluto uh, being Hades of course and the stewards from the Isles of the Blessed came and told Zeus that the wrong people were going to both places then Zeus said well I will put a stop to that cases are judged badly now said he because those who are tried come to judgment with their clothes on for they are still alive when judged and therefore many, said he, who possessed evil souls, are invested with fine bodies and lineage and wealth. When the trial takes place, many witnesses come forward to testify that they've lived righteous lives. So the judges are dazzled by these, and at the same time they are clothed themselves when they give sentence. Their eyes, their ears, and their whole bodies acting as a screen before their souls." They have all these hindrances before them, both their own clothing and that of those on trial. The idea of clothing we can think of in a mythological symbolic language as the externalities. To think of clothing, it is the garments of an emperor and all of the people that a king or a rich man can bring to testify for him and all of these externalities that he can show to try and show what a what a great person he was and at the same time the judges are clothed as well they have these biases of their role being children of a god in zeus's case uh, that nothing is being judged right we're being distracted by the outward images and not seeing the true person. So the solution here is separating the soul and the body. And Socrates in the myth mentions how the body after death shows the scars and the signs of the way life was lived. He says, if you were a fat man in life, you're going to have a fat corpse. If you broke your arm, you're going to be able to tell. 
how many times have we found a caveman and been able to tell what their diet and their life was like? I mean, I'm pretty sure we've found a fossil of a Tyrannosaurus Rex and been able to tell that it had gout. Um, the The body can tell you a lot about the person, even though we don't know anything about the life that they lived. We don't know if that caveman with their diet was a a good person or not but we can tell some things by the body that is left behind and the judgment here the way that socrates seems to be through this myth asking us to judge others is through their soul getting rid of the externalities the clothing and showing that the same things are going to be evident in death, he says. And so I believe the same thing is true of the soul, Callicles. Once it has been stripped of the body, everything in the soul is manifest. Its natural characteristics and the experiences which a man's soul has encountered through occupations of various kinds. And so if you are stripped of the outward signs of worldly success, you can look at the soul to see the real person there. And the idea is that as these naked souls are brought before the judges, then they can see the the twistings and the breakings of a, a person who has lived an unjust life and are totally unaware and have no way to know whether that was a common thief or some some great king or some great ruler. And I find it very interesting because Socrates definitely places a far greater responsibility on the rulers, on the people in power than he does on the commoners. And I'm wondering if that's something you found Plato does throughout his dialogues, or is this one unique in that way, in that sense? I don't think so. I, I can't put my finger on it exactly, but I know that there are a couple of dialogues where the same sort of situation comes up where someone says, hey, look at this guy. He must have been really happy. I think it was Archelaus in this um, in this particular dialogue. And they kind of go through his life and um, and realize that, yes, while he was you know successful and, and, and got whatever he wanted, he did so in such a, a, a disgusting way, you know, killing people and, you know, doing all these illicit things to, to get his power. So I think that that's, um, that's probably true across the line. I think what he ends up doing most of the time though, is using these high profile individuals just because they're a good reference point. Like everyone knows, uh, you know, um, everyone knows Pericles, everyone knows Archelaus, everyone knows all these people that, um, that get referenced. Um, so I think that there is some, there is some sense that the, the more, the more vice you commit, you know, the le- the more injustice, the, the kind of the more you're going to be in for it. And mm. because the stakes are so much higher, you know, just kind of like amplifying your influence, these people just have more possibility of, of doing wrong and doing bad things to people. Right. It's, I, I've definitely questioned quite a few times in terms of, it, and it can be applied to any 
type of institution where there's a lot of power. The question of is it power that corrupts people or is it that narcissistic people are attracted to positions mm -hmm. of power, right? I definitely think that Socrates mentions this idea of power enabling evil. Um, and he does it actually through the Homeric tradition, um, saying that Homer bears him out on this as those who suffer eternal punishment in Hades are kings or princes. Uh, and a lot of the people who meet these great punishments that we can see in like Ovid's Metamorphoses, for example, are powerful people. And Socrates mentions someone as a foil to this, uh, Thersites. He says, Thersites or any other private person who did wrong has by no one been represented as afflicted with cruel punishment because incurable. For I suppose he had not the power and therefore was happier than those who had. Um, Thersites, who's mentioned here, he is in the Iliad, uh, kind of plays the role of the, the common soldier. And we know that because when we're told of Thersites, we're not, he's not Thersites son of this person. He's not Thersites of this line. He's not Thersites who was trained in the warrior tradition by this great, he's just Thersites. He is very interesting because he speaks out of turn. He doesn't, he doesn't hold the scepter when he is attacking Agamemnon and some of these leaders. He is trying to say, listen, you all, why are you upset? You guys get everything. You are the rich men who are coming out of this Trojan War and sacking this city and going home rich and with uh, tons of slaves, male and female, uh, so to work for you and to tend to your house. And you are getting this ransom whenever you kidnap people and look at us commoners we are not um we're not able to benefit from any of that yet we still suffer we still fight and it's interesting that socrates mentions yeah thersites isn't one of those people who ends up in one of these hellish eternal punishments and there's a little bit of a question of is that because he's better or is it because even common people who have flaws can can rectify them and can make changes by looking at the examples of these terrible people in punishments? Um, and that brings it to the question of the afterlife in this myth, right? Here, it's very much a good place, bad place kind of duality one. But there's a different role that's sort of an in-between, and in many ways, I feel like it mirrors or foreshadows or speaks to something that is also spoken to by the later tradition, um, Neoplatonism and Christianity, as these ideas came in, even looking at something like the Divine Comedy. Mm. Um, Socrates mentions the idea of there being people who are going to be punished forever and there's just no hope for them and they're never going to change they are set in their ways um you could think of somebody in dante's inferno where they are in 
in this great punishment and still just upset and bickering about how, ah, oh, my life, this is so unfair, or I'm so bitter still, and I was right, and I wouldn't do a thing differently if I went back. And then there are people who can either suffer and be made better for it, or people who are able to learn from the lesson of the suffering of others. Um, this idea that if you're hearing this, it's not too late. Yeah, right. There's actually a, a I mean, there's a couple of important physical um, parallels to this in the earlier parts of the dialogue. Because remember, Socrates is suggesting for people who are evil, people who have done, well, maybe people aren't evil, people who have done evil, people who have been unjust. He says, go run to the judge, confess yourselves and use rhetoric to as effectively as possible explain how bad you are. Don't leave anything out so that the judge can then go ahead and give you a punishment. And that punishment is actually good for you. It's actually doing something to your soul that's positive. So in, in a way that mirrors what you're talking about in that in this eternal realm or in this um, afterlife where, yeah, there, there's a sense in which there's got to be um, justice happening. And, and part of that justice is punishment. And ideally, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about the divine, depending on how, how this is construed, yeah, there would be some element of uh, restorative justice as well. Cause I mean, we expect that in, we expect that here. Why not, why not expect it there? But also the, another important parallel is that this, this dialogue, I mean, this uh, myth is actually brought into play because Socrates is being accused of being unable to defend himself in a court of law because Socrates is not, um, you know, he's not a, a, a well adapted rhetorician. He's not going to lie to make his case. He's, he, we see in, um, in the apology kind of how he, how he rolls in that way. And, and so uh, Calicles says, Socrates, you're going to get, you're going to get beat up in the law courts. You know, they're going to, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to slap you around and then you're going to get a bad, a bad outcome. And so he uses this myth to kind of turn that on its head and say, well, actually, you know, it's the unjust person that's going to get the bad outcome. So we have to, I think to see the parallels between this life and the afterlife help us to understand sort of what we ought to expect. Um, when it all kind of pans out. Hmm. And it, it's interesting too, because there are definitely differing ideas of the afterlife in ancient Greece. I mean, there is, we can have in this one where there's sort of an eternal good place, bad place sort of divide. But then we have something like the myth of Ur, where there's more of a, um, a, reincarnation right and then others i mean there were mystery cults and mystery rituals that we still know very little about like the eleusinian mysteries where there was this depending on how right we are with what we know it seems like something of a psychedelic ritual oh. that would show the rebirth through the story of uh hades and persephone and demeter um and then other ideas of immortality of fame, where think of how you're going to be remembered. Think of how, if people are still speaking of you all these 
years, centuries, millennia, in this case later, you are still immortal and your name, as long as your name is spoken, you haven't ever truly died. There are all these competing ideas, yet in many ways, I feel that they can be seen as somewhat harmonious, even if different, when you look at the good and the bad in each, right? If you're going to take the platonic uh, prescription here to find like the form of the the good through this, that we can, whether you're going to be reincarnated and need to learn about, right, make a better life through that redemptive suffering or whether it is seeing the punishments of others as i mean even we see here in the mythological tradition there are these punishments of people who have been um who have been the worst and it's the reason they're told is don't be like them uh or if we're looking at even as we were saying with the historical sort of view earlier like we aren't reading this dialogue to get to learn more about Callicles. For something called the Gorgias, we're not we're not saying what does Gorgias think about all of this? And it's almost self proving, uh self fulfilling that it is Socrates that we are sent away wondering more about, wanting to hear more from. And it's from Socrates that we have this idea of, listen, there is something beyond this life that you're focused on. And myth is one way to communicate it, but there are all of these different ways to show go for a just life, go for something righteous. If you're listening, it's not too late. So let us follow this, I say, inviting others to join us, not that which you believe in and commend to me, for it is worthless, dear Callicles. The idea of finding that good, being convinced by one of these stories, whether it's of a literal judgment or not, that there's something more and you're going what even if that something more is just history that there's still a point to following this just life and to trying to die as good a man as you possibly can be and that is socrates's fate he is sentenced to death right exile which he declines and therefore death and yet it's socrates that we're talking about before anyone else now it's socrates and through plato through neoplatonism through the the meshing with christianity which i mean we can see through this afterlife idea there was kind of the foundations there ready for uh ready to blend as though the cultures were just waiting for each other in a way it seems to give a very good prescription for what is uh for what one ought to do 
for this idea of the good life. Yeah, I I, I think that, you know, regardless of what you believe, I think that you can learn from Calicles, it's a bad idea to write it off, right? Like a lot of people like, ah, you know, not, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's nothing going to happen. I'm going to die and it's going to be nothing. Like that's probably, that's probably a bad position for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, obviously, like you were saying, there's definitely an element of uh, teleology in life where we're going to want to look at our end, look at where we're going and use our lives to kind of work in that direction. And I think that having that is, is just helpful no matter what. But also, I mean, you could probably testify to this. Like this is, this is a common theme. Like people have been about this idea for a long time. You know, it, it would probably be a bad idea just to write it off, um, you know, off, offhand j just for that. You know, <laughs> you don't want to, uh, you don't want to take risks in that sense, I think. And it's, it it's so interesting because it seems like there's a misconception of some skepticism about the the role of the myth within the dialogue i mean as i was reading through various academic papers on this i found one that was arguing that oh well we shouldn't take anything socrates says seriously and he's joking with all this but i feel like if we look at his own words, I mean, it starts with him saying, take everything I'm about to tell you as though it were absolute truth. <laughs> he's not necessarily saying, this is the absolute truth. I've been to the afterlife. But he's saying, for the good of your soul, take this as absolute truth. And when he is finishing his myth and going to a call of action, he, he says, okay, you don't like it. I get that. Find me something yeah. better. Find me something more useful than this idea. Find me something that will lead you to live a better life. Uh, because whether we're put on trial by these, these judges who are children of the gods to judge the state of our soul, like we're all being put on trial. Uh, whether it's by ourselves or the memory of history or if it is something of a metaphysical judgment i think it appeals and it speaks to the it speaks to the power of story and myth to communicate something that you know one might call truer than true something that can show you the form mm. In, yeah. in a sense, it can give you a glimpse of something beyond the pleasures of this world. And I mean, I definitely think that that is a reminder that all of us can use. I mean, myself included, to think about what comes what comes next in whatever way that may yeah, be. Yeah, and I think that when you look at Socrates, he really kind of puts his money where his mouth is. If you look at um, the, uh, the Phaedo. One of the one of the earlier dialogues, uh, which which for you know Socrates scholars indicates that it probably has more Socrates than Plato in it. Um, when he's getting, and you could also look at um, the Apology and the Apology in um, Xenophon as well, which has some of those things included. But he really he's kind of about this afterlife. 
Like he's, he believes that there will be some reconciliation, you know, that, that there will be justice meted out to people. And that even when it doesn't, you know, his, his expectation is that having lived in accordance with goodness and in accordance with the will of the gods, that he should expect something good. And he's telling people this, they're like, why aren't you afraid to die? And he, that's one of his reasons. And I think that that would lend me to believe that he's he's in earnest here uh, in the Gorgias because he seems to he seems to put his own you know he he stakes his own life on that on that idea. Right. He he trusts in his personal spirit, right? His personal daimon that uh, speaks to him and and inspires him and tells him what is right. And I know I believe it's in the apology that he says, listen, either the gods are just and I'm going to have a good life or they're not just. So in that case, why should I care? Um, there, There's, I definitely agree that Socrates seems very earnest here, very much believes in the value of what he has to say and that his death is willing death being put to execution by others. Um, which, I mean, again, very much parallels the Christian idea, which I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Greece was the the door or window through which Christianity entered Europe. Uh, because of the openness to this idea of redemptive suffering, but also this idea of being willing to put one's life on the line for something higher, for a virtue. Um, Socrates willingly drank from the hemlock and was willing to face death. And when I think of, to bring it to Napoleon again, right? He's someone who was facing this exile, decided, no, I'm going to make a glorious last stand. And my goodness, it was a last stand. I mean, we are going to be talking about Waterloo for a very long time too. But, well, I suppose the jury's out. And until we, we see exactly how literally true this myth may be, uh, I'll let you know in a hundred years at most. I'll talk to you then if I can. There's certainly history being the judge and society being the judge, culture being the judge, and ourselves being a judge too. So any closing things you wanted to hit on for this dialogue? If not, what is what is next? What are you working on with 60-second philosophy? Matt, as we approach 60-minute <laughs> philosophy on this uh, one. Yeah, well, uh, YouTube's had to take a little bit of a backseat. Um, I'm actually working on uh, a novel, finishing that up here um hopefully this winter I, I my my work is seasonal so i go back to work in april ish and uh and so that's been my that's been my big thing but trying to trying to make some kind of uh what's the word trying to get some some systems in order to be able to put some some stuff out more regularly but we'll see if that happens Hey, that is super exciting, and that is what splitting up large podcasts into small yeah. clips is for. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> in 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 that case, uh, all that's left on my part uh, is I would like to thank you very much for this time. Uh, it has been really great going through this with you, and there are quite a few other dialogues. I mentioned the myth of Ur and the Republic before that I would love to hear your thoughts on and uh, love to chat on again like this because this was a really great time. Um, and I uh, thank you very much for that. And I'm really looking forward to everything that you are doing in the future. Uh, looking forward to hearing more about the novel as that all comes through it as well. And uh, whatever else this may hold, this has been a great conversation. I'm yeah, great. To many